Hi, my name is Andre Wade, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and I'm so excited that you are joining me again for season three of this show. So exciting. Amazing things are happening in Las Vegas. That's why we're in our third season, because there is so much compassion in our city, in our community, so much hope to share and to amplify. So thank you for your support and your encouragement and for continuing to tune in and share and even leave ratings and comments on the podcast. With that, I'd like to welcome today's guest, none other than someone I consider a very, very amazing individual. He's a friend of mine, and more than that, he's a friend of our community. Welcome, Andre Wade. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that great introduction. <laughs> you know, you you deserve it. You are <laughs> Mr. Fabulous, so <laughs> uh, so grateful you're on the broadcast. I wanted to touch base and just kind of start with what is happening in your world right now. Wow, that's a loaded question, but I'm happy to, to share, see if I can get something uh, out of these different drawers in my brain. Uh, you know, Super State of Quality, we've been around for uh, two and a half years and have tried to make the biggest impact that we um, can, especially given the COVID environment that we um, came out of deeply in 2020 and still just kind of making our way out of it. Um, but the things that we have going on um, is just getting ready for redistricting work. Um, not the most exciting thing for folks to really hear about or maybe even understand because it's something that happens every 10 years. But, you know, these different district lines are going to be drawn for um, the election process and just trying to figure out how to make sure that uh, communities stay in place, given the growth that has happened in Nevada overall and specifically in Clark County. And so just want to make sure that we have an um, LGBTQ voice at the table and um, a voice for Black people, brown people, and other people of color uh, to make sure that, again, our communities stay uh, intact and really just getting ready for 2022 and uh, the elections. And it's going to be really important for folks to know when to vote, how to vote, who to vote for. We're going to go through our own endorsement process to give folks a, a good sense of some great LGBTQ candidates or poor equality candidates that they uh, should vote for. And really just 2023, believe it or not, we're focusing on 2023 and what our legislative agenda will look like. Um, we will carry a couple of bills ourselves and work with our partners to support their bills that are um, really poor equality bills, as we like to call them, um, that are focused on including LGBTQ plus people um, um, to make sure that there's non-discrimination protections and other uh, measures in place. So I don't feel like we've actually reached the end of the 2020 election. <laughs> and here you are already working on what's coming up. Uh, you mentioned redistricting, and I want to spend just a moment talking about that. I think it's so important for those of us who are compassionate humans to be engaged in governing so that that compassionate voice is present and actually shaping what's happening. But 
I saw a map from President Obama uh, mm-hmm. for Texas and some of their preliminary um, redistricting. We're not going to have that type of issue, are we, in Nevada? Which issue specifically do you mean? Where the the lines are these shapes we've never seen and one bubble is is over here 10 miles away from another and, and all of that. That is not the goal. The goal is to make sure that um, these lines are drawn so that they call it contiguous. So making sure that uh, the barriers are continuous, that there aren't any um, weird shapes. Um, and so that's really for the community to help uh, keep uh, legislators and um, at the local level, city councilmen, uh, people or uh, person from the county commissioners like in line with what they want for their community. So if one went to the Clark County um, open meeting, as an example, the other day, they've had a couple of maps as examples listed. And one of them had like a weird sort of shape and they just really emphasize that they're trying to have it to where communities aren't broken up. So sometimes you might see a weird shape, but if there are other recommendations that regular citizens can provide to folks as they are designing these maps, then that's what we want to have. So we don't have also what's called this cracking and packing, like packing particular communities all in one area or just cracking them and separating them, um, dispersing their power. So it's a big process. It can be um, a lot to digest, but at the end of the day, we're really pushing to make sure that there are these public meetings so um, citizens can have a voice. Okay, I don't wanna to spend too much time on this, but it's very, very fascinating. And it's one of those things I don't think we've ever addressed on this podcast. You mentioned cracking and packing. That for me is, is a bit of a lose-lose. Uh, because on one hand, you do want to keep communities together so that they have a representative that is specifically addressing their needs. And by the same token, you don't want their voice to be minimized in the community or to only have one representative for an entire, let's say, uh, Black population or Hispanic population. And so that they're not represented adequately. How do you track that balance? That's a really good question. And it takes a lot of designing of maps um, to keep communities of interest in line. So the communities of interest could be around uh, race. It could be around uh, uh, places of worship. It could be geographies. Maybe there's a particular highway that you don't want your community to have split. Um, by a highway, as an example. So there's all these different ways that we can keep these communities of interest in place. And it's easy for uh, organizations that are doing advocacy work or, again, these elected officials to make decisions without uh, the input from the community. And that's fine, but we really want to make sure that the community has an input and say so all the different concerns can be taken into account. And lastly, I'll say, we know that all of our communities aren't monoliths. So the Hispanic community has varying interests, the Asian community has varying interests, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
it's not just enough to say that, yes, all Black people want to live in this area, they want to stay by this church, and that's that, when there could be a lot more voices that need to be heard. So as part of the process, we just need to have as many people um, a part of it so we can make sure that all these different concerns are taken into account, which is, it's a, it's a challenge. It, it certainly is. Anyone that's ever even tried to throw a family reunion or a pizza party knows <laughs> like getting people to agree and show up at the same time even uh, can be quite the undertaking. Yeah, exactly. Because you don't want to have um, 10 dishes that are sweet potato pie, you know, <laughs> or have, a, you know, too many greens. You want to have a variety of things so everyone's uh, taste can be represented. For sure. And my my unpopular opinion is if I agree with my representative more than 80 percent of the time, then my representative is not a good representative. And the reason I say that is because you have to take into account the needs and interests of everyone you represent. And I recognize I am just one person and I have one viewpoint. And so if you're always in line with mine, that means you're probably not taking into account someone else's. And I say that even as someone who prides himself on being compassionate, on thinking about systems and the big picture. So thank you for kind of giving us a, a little thing, a better understanding of how that works. You particularly work with LGBTQIA plus interests. With the new census data, what does that, uh, or what did that reveal about uh, our population now? Well, unfortunately, the census data doesn't track um, LGBTQ plus households specifically. Um, if there are LGBTQ head of households um, where there are partnerships in place, then we can kind of track that. That just would mean that um, it would track, let's say, me and my partner or me and my husband's um, uh, household. But if it were two or three different LGBTQ folks unrelated living there, that data wouldn't be captured. So from some of the basic data that we have, uh, we know that the LGBTQ plus population is increasing um, and it could be for a myriad of reasons. For example, people moving to uh, Nevada. And so without having specific data um, that's based on the census, we just have to make inferences um, but with this new bill that passed on this last Nevada legislative session, um, SB 109, around what we call SOGI data collection, sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression, um, it's a requirement for the state of Nevada um, and local government entities when they're capturing demographic data, like around race, age, geography, that sort of thing, um, that we ask someone's sexual orientation, gender identity, so we can have a better sense of what our population looks like um, in the state of Nevada. And with that, someone doesn't have to, to answer the question. So you, it's no, like if you don't answer the question, there won't be any services that you won't get or anything like that. But these local um, and state governments will be required to ask. So at some point um, when we get up to speed, people might, when they start filling out uh, different forms, um, to access services or however, they might start seeing these uh, boxes that ask about their sexual orientation and gender identity. And again, it's to give us more information to really answer your initial question like um, about the population and uh, more importantly, the, the needs of LGBTQ plus people in Nevada. Do you sense that 
people are now more comfortable revealing or disclosing their orientation or gender identity. I know one of the challenges with the census was for undocumented individuals and their hesitancy to answer because of fear of really retaliation or, or uh, you know, someone showing up at their door saying you got to go. Um, do you sense that for the LGBT plus community, there's more openness or is there a bit of fear still lingering? Um, based on the research, there are findings that people are quite open about answering questions around their sexual orientation and gender identity, that they're more likely to answer that question than they are to ask answer questions about their income. So um, usually people on the other end have a hesitancy to ask the question because they haven't been trained on why it's important or even how to ask the question. And so it's usually the folks who are asking the question that have a little bit more um, anxiety or hesitancy about it. But um, usually when it comes to uh, responders, we're happy to have people uh, recognize um, that we exist in these uh, formal documents and whatnot. So again, usually there's not an issue, but again, it's someone's choice. That's good to hear. And I, I have just, you know, anecdotally noticed that it's far more accepted than when I was coming up and people are, are way more open about a lot more things uh, than, you know, my, me back in the day, um, which gives me hope. It really inspires me. And I'm not just talking about people that identify as same gender loving or any, any of those things. I mean, people across the board are just kind of like, yeah. And I think part of that is because we have now seen it in, in movies and on television and in stage plays. And now even in our religious communities, we're seeing people, you know, of all different uh, perspectives and, and ways of life. So uh, I think exposure really allows us to step toward understanding and acceptance. I'm really, really happy about that. Um, let me ask on this piece, with your work, you deal with you know, government, you deal with creating policy, you, you deal with some of the very, very difficult aspects of just existing within community. What do you think Las Vegas is doing well that makes us a safe community for LGBTQIA plus people? Um, that's a, a good question. Um, and I think it's subjective, un, uh, unfortunately. So big picture policy and practice wise, um, the city of Las Vegas or Southern Nevada in general, including Clark County, um, tend to have welcoming inclusive policies and non-discrimination policies. So you will see like in employment that there's um, discrimination protections. You'll see that uh, the city of Las Vegas is um, being inclusive when they are, um, I'm trying to think about some of the uh, HRC's municipality index questions uh, that sort of track um, uh, a jurisdiction's uh, uh, welcoming, being welcoming and inclusive. So if someone had a program, let's say a city of Las Vegas had a um, homelessness program where they were actually having programs that were LGBTQ inclusive, these sort of things matter big picture wise. But when it comes to like day-to-day on the ground um, um, safety and protections, 
you know, it might be a little less so in real time. So you might have where people are still kind of afraid to hold hands in public. And there might be these instances of uh, violence and discrimination. And we're hoping that uh, law enforcement responds in a, a, a great way. And so all these little things at the community individual level, you know, can still be problematic. So I just don't want to like make it seem that um, we're, we're doing everything great in Las Vegas or Southern Nevada. But when you come to like these higher level policies and uh, protections that we want to have in place, like those are there, but we just have to make sure that um, there's some accountability uh, when it comes to any hiccups that might happen or, or any grievances that someone might have in real time. I appreciate you bringing that perspective in. In May of 2021, the Las Vegas City Council unanimously approved a resolution declaring compassion as our value for our city. And so it is said that a compassionate city can be an uncomfortable city. And the reason is exactly what you just talked about. We, we don't look away from our struggles or our challenges or our areas of opportunity. We look towards them and leap into action, which it is a lot easier to just think everything is just beautiful and there are no issues. But the reality is there are still real issues happening. You mentioned some folks may be uncomfortable with public displays of affection, such as holding hands, or there may be some concern when law enforcement gets involved. Are there programs that your organization offers to help educate individuals like in law enforcement uh, around how to properly and appropriately respond to the LGBT community? Yeah, we offer uh, trainings and consultations and just meeting with these different um, institutions. And like part of our mission is to bring the voices of LGBTQ plus people to the institutions of power. Um, because this idea that when folks are in trouble or in need, they turn to these institutions like um, city government, law enforcement, schools um, for help. And so we want to make sure that these institutions are trained up and are supportive, have the right policies and procedures in place to be able to help uh, individuals. And so we are always uh, working with these uh, institutions when we can, and we work with our partners and our partnering organizations uh, like Gender Justice um, and the Human Rights Campaign to, to do the work uh, co collaboratively. And so it's always a struggle because sometimes you can go to an organization and they're like, yeah, we're good, we're good. Yeah, no, no issues over here. And then like five weeks later, something happens and they're reaching out. And so you're just like, okay. But, um, but it's the, the openness and willingness for uh, companies and organizations to have the conversation has greatly increased um, over the past 10 years. So we're happy for that, but there's still always a lot more work to, to be done and to get these organizations to understand that we were really just here to, to help and not really add to any um, extra projects to their plates. I totally get that. And in my other work, besides the podcast, I do consulting around a values-based culture within an organization. And often, you know, the, the resistance or hesitancy to actually go through some of the assessment is, we're fine. 
We're doing well. And it's like, okay, you know, I'll sit back and wait. And like you said, a couple of weeks later, hey, so about that assessment, can it help you with diversity? Can it help you with this? Can it, you know, and I'm like, yes, that's exactly what we help with. So um, I can totally relate. One of the objectives of this season for season three is really to make this compassionate resolution a reality. What's the, if you had to dig down deep and had a magic wand and could fix what we would call the core or root of the the issues that you face, what would that thing be? How would you fix or change something in our city to truly bring that resolution to life? Hmm. Related to LGBTQ issues or just in general? Just in general, but certainly in regards to LGBTQ as well. I I think at the core of almost all these social issues is uh, good old-fashioned misinformation and being undereducated about um, Black people, Hispanic people, people who identify as LGBT, uh, and particularly trans. Um, people can wrap their minds around someone who's lesbian, gay, maybe still have some issues with people who are bisexual and pansexual. But when it comes to transgender and uh, being non-binary, people are like, still grappling with these concepts but a lot of it has to do with not ever getting information around gender identity and sexual orientations in school and um, higher education and probably not you know on the job until you've had mandatory uh cultural competency training so people are sometimes in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, for the first time really learning this information in a formal setting. And so you have to take um, a lot of time to roll back people's misunderstandings about people's identity. Because we just, we think about identity nowadays as like this divisive thing, as if identity is just something that progressives or people on the left have. But we wrap ourselves around identity when it comes to our sports teams or whether or not we're a good cook or not. Um, It's the same as for our race and our uh, gender, but we like to think that they're separate things. And so we can just kind of get people to understand a little bit more about what it means to be black and Hispanic and Asian. And that it's not something that, minority groups want to make as a divisive issue, but this divisive issue has been thrust upon us as minority groups that we have been seen as different and treated as different and inequality stems from this difference. And again, it's just, we, we haven't had these, these conversations and um, um, outside of our home settings, probably never or ever, which ties us back to another bill that passed in the last legislative session around inclusive curriculum. Um, for schools where it include um, ethnic studies and LGBTQ content to know that when folks are, uh, when students are uh, learning history and civics that they can hear about um, the contributions made from black indigenous um, Asian folks in history and LGBTQ plus um, advocates, history makers. So we can normalize people that are in our everyday community, in our society, Uh, This isn't about uh, trying to push any sort of agenda because we just know that the more people are exposed to other people and have the truth about um, this city's history, American history, that it can be a way um, 
to sort of tackle the, the disagreements that we have in real life in our communities. And that's just what we, we all just want to, we all just want to get along, right? Uh, but it's going to take for us to be able to know who each other are um, and ask questions um, because there's a lot of historical misinformation about what it means to be, again, Black, Indigenous, Asian, Hispanic, and um, identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. And organizations like Silver State Equality and our partnering organizations are here to talk to folks in the community um, about uh, the realities of our identities and our existence. So I'm going to call you Pastor Wade because you just gave us a sermon. That was <laughs> really, really good. Yeah, identity is such a big topic. And one of the challenges that, uh, for those that may not know, I'm also a pastor. And um, one of the, the challenges I face with with teaching congregations, um, I've done traveling ministry and been literally around the world um, sharing what I thought was a fairly simple message around love and loving yourself, loving others, and how that is expressed in the world. But what I discovered is identity was the thing people protected the most. Mm -hmm. And if they had to reshape their theology, that was reshaping their identity. If they had to let go of a particular notion of God, that was reshaping their reality. If they had to let go of a party affiliation, that was reshaping how they viewed who they were. So, Andre, who are you? Who am I? Oh, well, that's a, that's a good question. So, I am... a black guy born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada, um, whose parents fled the Jim Crow South uh, back in the 50s separately, but they came here uh, in the 60s and met. And I am someone who has the goal and mission to help others because of the bullying isolation I felt as um, a child and young person. And so um, those are the things that I use to describe myself. Um, less so now do I describe myself based upon the work that I do um, or even the sort of religious, religious background that I have because I know that under um, all these different layers of the, the I and the self that make me, me um, it's a lot deeper than anything I could explain to, to someone in, in words, but um, giving you that brief um, snippet of um, my background kind of just shapes my worldview um, and really kind of answers the question as to why I do what I do in many different areas of my life. That's one of my favorite questions to ask. And if we were you know, not on a podcast, I'd ask you that probably five more times in a row and really dive through some of those layers. Each of us is so multi, 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 multifaceted. And it, it's, it's just amazing at the different intersections that greet us when we enter into this life. Uh, you mentioned a few things around being bullied. I, I can absolutely relate to that. And it's amazing to me how many people relate to that experience 
and it doesn't fit into, well, you know, you were heavy or you were short or you were tall or you were thin or you, you were gay or you were what it, it, it crosses all of these things that we say, well, those are the kind of people that get bullied. I think that's something that's so universal. Once we take down our mask and once we really expose our authentic selves. And one of the things that I have loved about Las Vegas and also loathed about it is this is a place of reinvention. And people come here with the, the idea that they can be whatever it is they want to be. Uh, I think of even Elvis, whose career was jump-started because of you know, Las Vegas, even though the first time he was here, it didn't quite work so well. But um, you know, Elvis reinvented. And then you had um, you know, so many superstars that have come here and just relaunched careers or finished their careers or found new careers. Um, people do that as well, but sometimes they come and don't like who they become or how they become mm-hmm. because we become a bit uh, suspicious, perhaps, of new people because of how transient we are as a community. So it's one of those things where this subject we could certainly dive into all day and get into the layers, but at the end of the day, the thing that Las Vegas really does is it really provides everyone an opportunity for a fresh start. <laughs> and that's whether you're a native or not, you know, you can switch careers, you can switch spouses, whatever you want to do, you know, when you're here and there's just so much opportunity. So I love that. I want to talk about your student advisory council because dealing with the issue of bullying, that is something that's really risen to the top of the issues recently with social media. And then, of course, over the pandemic, how uh, mental health has really become a, a focal point. So tell us a bit about your work with youth. Uh, yeah, so I personally have a, a background in working with youth in a lot of different um context. Um, when I started off in my career, I started working at a group home uh, with uh, young people who were severely emotionally disturbed, as we called them back then. Um, worked with youth on um, probation at a, um, on a campus and these other different settings. Um, but when we went through COVID and we started hearing about um, the struggles that young people were having with isolation, um, there were um, attempts at suicide, some completions, unfortunately. Um, We knew that there was something that we wanted to try to address um, because there's also this thing where people, young students were at home uh, a lot more, some in households that weren't necessarily supportive. And so going to school and being out of the house was a a relief. And now when it changed and these students were at home all the time with parents who weren't accepting or didn't know who they really um, were they weren't out. It was really stressful uh, for these students. And so what we are doing is forming an LGBTQ um, Student Advisory Council um, that will include some adult mentors um, with the goal of having them help to change uh, school climate um, in um, high schools and maybe at the university level as well. And so they will, we're gonna go on a listening tour and hear from students about what their needs are. I'm gonna have the students put together a presentation about what their needs are to present to legislators, to decision makers in school, 
and then have the, the guidance of these mentors, adult mentors on the advisory council to help um, them navigate any political waters and, and whatnot. But we also just want students to be engaged and have a sense of belonging, um, make sure that they have a voice. So if they're feeling a little bit lonely and isolated um, and a little off kilter for the past year and a half of what's been happening uh, with compounding issues that the Student Advisory Council will be a way for them to be involved and engaged in something that's constructive and hopefully we'll be able to make a change for students uh, across the state. That's fantastic. And I love the, when you said listening tour, I just, I was like, we need to have more listening tours just in general. <laughs> Yeah. hear each other. But one thing that I wanted to, to ask more about is around the idea of coming out. And I've heard statistics that just one adult that is accepting or supportive of an LGBTQIA plus youth can dramatically reduce the risk of uh, suicidal ideation or even depression. What is the compassionate way to embrace someone who is coming out? And what can we do as a community to create an atmosphere or an environment that is supportive of that? Yeah, I think you were referring to some of the work of Dr. Caitlin Ryan with her Family Acceptance Project work. Um, and she, by taking into account uh, someone's religious beliefs and ethnicity and race uh, just showed that the more accepting that a, a parent is of uh, a child who comes out, the less likely that that child is to experience depression and um, suicide ideation and, and engage in risky behavior. And so the compassionate thing to do is really to not encourage a young person or really anybody to, to come out. It's a personal choice. It's different for everyone. Um, even th there are very well-meaning and well-intentioned people who are like, hey, I know that my nephew is gay and we just, we're supportive, even his uncle's gay. He should know that we're supportive. We just want him to come out and be happy. And that's great, but we just have to realize that it's an individual choice. Maybe the, the nephew will never come out and that's fine. Um, because when you come out, like your life changes and you come out constantly to everyone all the time. It never stops. I'm 46 years old. I've been out for decades, but I come out all the time. It's a, it's a constant thing. Uh, but it's also my, my choice to do so um, in these individual um, moments. And so the compassionate thing is to just let someone um, have their own process because it goes back to when people come out, relationships change, um, someone's identity changes, how they navigate their lives changes. And we know that that's going to happen on the other side of coming out. There's always that risk that we won't be accepted either by an individual family member or friend or at the community level on our, our teammates, our classmates at work. Uh, so it's a, it's a process and something we always have to, to juggle. So be compassionate, let someone uh, do their own thing, um, but just be supportive uh, when they do come out because um, uh, they'll definitely need and want and appreciate the support. Do you think we are heading towards a world where coming out is as, and forgive the lack of finesse on the way I'm saying this, but where it's as accepted as being left-handed mm -hmm. or a singer or, you know, a, a athletic, you know, anything where coming out really isn't a coming out. It's more of a, 
hey, this is my boyfriend or hey, this is whatever or hey, I'm actually transgender. And, you know, I, I don't I still I'm learning, you know, even though I'm a part of the community, I'm still learning how all of this works. But do you see us heading towards a world where it's just normal? Um, hopefully. Um, and so, you know, you wouldn't say like, I am a transgender, you might just say I am transgender. Um, but I think we'll eventually get there. Um, it's going to take some time. So over the past 20 years, this social justice, social movement in general related to LGBTQ plus folks or really LGB, um, has expanded to be more inclusive and laws have changed like rapidly. It's like the most successful movement in uh, history when it comes to like civil rights and social movements. So there's a lot to, to learn from, um, from that, which goes to say that, you know, we're in this space now, like you and I were talking about Alana's Morissette being in town the other day. And, you know, her song, Ironic, she has this song like, you know, meeting the man of my dreams and her original uh lyrics was and then meeting his beautiful wife but when she was on stage uh the other day she's like meeting the man of my dreams and meeting his beautiful husband and everyone's like oh my god oh like you know laughing and smiling and that's just it's normal like people get it it's like the tongue-in-cheek and we all can understand it and it's just like so natural and that's that's very helpful and once we get past the idea of like do you, did you hear, you know, about so-and-so or wonder, you know, oh, you know, it's not really that exciting if someone's lesbian, gay or bisexual. I think we are kind of getting out of that, but I think we still have a lot of work to do among folks who identify as transgender, or even non-binary, that once we get rid of that, thinking it's something like really interesting or like different that we need to talk about it and, and wonder about and, and, those sort of things, I think we can kind of get to the point where, to your point, like, yeah, someone will just kind of show up somewhere, introduce themselves or their significant other and feel like, oh, okay. And, but it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time. The non-binary piece is so, it is interesting to me. Um, I was at Ikea and no less than three of the associates that assisted me uh, had they on their name tag. And some had like he, they, or she, they, but they was just kind of everywhere. And I was like, you know, maybe I should you know, put a slash and do they, because I'm not hung up on gender norms. And even as a youngster, I was like, well, I like, you know, I like doing hair. I like Barbie dolls and this sort of thing, which isn't typical, you know, masculine boy thing. Right. But I was a boy and it's what I like. So I didn't necessarily fit into the box. I'll never forget my ninth grade year marching band. My band director was gay. I didn't know that I knew that at the time. I think I figured it out. But there was some fabric somewhere and I wrapped it around me like a dress. It was super cute, by the way. <laughs> but I, I did that. And as we're getting ready to march out for, I think it was our homecoming rally or, or something in the gymnasium, I, I walked past him and I was expecting to say, you know, take that off. And he didn't. He was like, oh, that looks good on you. And I was like, what? You know, what's going on? I did take it off because I just <laughs> was not about to do that. But, um, you know, I, I, I love being forward with fashion. And I think of people like Billy Porter, who, you know, will rock a full beard with a dress. And 
just the idea that because of your organs, you can't wear certain ensembles doesn't, doesn't resonate with me. And I just want to know, like, does that make me non-binary? What, explain that a bit more. Yeah, um, non-binary really is for folks who don't see themselves as particularly male or female, or it's a mixture of both, kind of depending on the day, the hour, however. And with that, don't necessarily ascribe to any expectations or stereotypes around what it means to be male or female. And so our society and societies around the, the world have constructed these ideas of what it means to be male and female. And um, once you are um, named as such at birth, then you subscribe to certain behaviors and expectations around your, your identity. But if you don't subscribe to any particular identity when it comes to gender, then yeah, like what's the big deal if you wear makeup or um, something that's feminine and you're a, a male? Um, and so it's all of these sort of way that you navigate and see your life and how you express yourself um, helps someone to determine whether or not they see themselves as non-binary. You know, just, you know, simply uh, wearing different clothing and having a, a change in pronoun, you know, it might be one small way of expressing yourself. But for some, uh, for a lot of non-binary people, it's a lot just deeper that they really don't have a sense of this maleness or femaleness or care to see themselves in these, these boxes in that way, enough to where um, they want to um, have pronouns that fit uh, more of how they see themselves. In the indigenous traditions, I've heard the term two-spirit. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I've had friends who identify in that way as, as two-spirit. It's, it's still new to me. I mean, I, I don't under, understand everything of, about it, or um, I'm not experienced everything, even though I've been active within just, you know, the gay community, for, we won't say how many decades, but you know, it's been a minute. It, it's still something that even I'm learning. And my hope is that we extend each other grace as we are learning and as we are going through this, this change in culture, because, you know, 50 years ago, this wasn't really a thing. Uh, I mean, it was, we have always had diversity and gender within our species, but it hasn't been popular or mainstream. And now that it is, I think most people are really, really trying to do what's right and, and get it right, but we fail. Uh, one of the, the people on my, my team, I don't supervise her directly, but I supervise her supervisor. Uh, well, let me back up. I supervise their supervisor. Oh, and it, it, the way the fluency, uh, of how it just comes out when um, the supervisor speaks of this person, it amazes me every time because I still stumble. I practice, but just what I was drilled into in my English class from first grade really made it tough for me to adapt and change. And I know my heart. I know that I'm compassionate. And well, you know, I know that I'm gay. So I'm, I'm a member of the community. And if it's hard for me, I try to recognize that it's probably even harder 
for my 70 year old grandmother or, you know, my 80 year old uncle that whatever it may be, or shoot my 25 year old uncle, whatever it may be. Um, if you just not had these experiences and, and lived in a way that has provided the exposure, it's, it's downright hard. So I'm wondering from your perspective, I know we've talked about a lot, we've covered a, a ton of different subjects from your perspective, in our community, what is compassion? What is compassion? Compassion to me is when you have love, respect, um, and honor for someone else and who they are um, and accepting who they are and their struggles and their successes. Um, I think we often lack compassion for others, which gets us in these spaces where we feel like we're competing against or fighting with other different groups of people. Um, but I am a thousand times grateful that I have enough compassion for others um, that are completely different from me. Um, in order for me to hopefully be a better person and treat them well and treat others well and be able to work on behalf of people who are um, completely different from me. Like I'm, I'm quite privileged in my lack of some privilege in that, you know, I grew up in a middle-class household. I have um, a couple of degrees. Um, I make great money. I've been able to travel all these fantastic things that allow me to live my life in these really fantastic ways. Um, and I have a lot of compassion for people who are living in poverty, who are experiencing homelessness, who um, have poor access to drinking water, all these things. And I just want to be able to play a part. But what helps me be able to do that is to be able to have compassion for them. I don't care about their uh, race and their socioeconomic status or their gender and all that stuff. I just know as a person, like I feel for them and I want our community to do better and recognize these people who are struggling. Uh, compassion is one thing. We need some action behind the compassion as well. And I feel like if we had more of that from folks, then we can just see that we're all in this together. Like we're all trying to um, make a good living, live happy lives. Uh, we've all been traumatized in some way for some reason. And we just want the best for our family and friends, people in our tribe, because we're creatures who are very tri tribal. Um, but, you know, there's just a lot of research that's out there that just shows that when we are in these different tribes, we just want our tribe to succeed over that other tribe over there. And so, any sense of compassion goes away when we're trying to make sure that our folks over here are good. And so I don't know how we're going to be able to break what seems to be very um, carnal to who we are as humans, but there are enough people like you and the work of Compassion in Las Vegas to help uh, beat the, the drums to encourage people to be more compassionate um, because I think that's just, what we all need um, a lot more of. Thank you for saying that. And um, I think that's such a, a great framing uh, of compassion. 
So what's on your playlist? What are you listening to now that's inspiring you, that's making you happy? And maybe there's a song that you may think of as like, yeah, this is what I, I think of when I think of Las Vegas. Oh, wow. I would, you know what? I needed that question before this because uh, even though I spent seven years working in music stores uh, my younger life and very much love music, um, my playlist consists mainly of like these just single songs from random artists. Um, so I would have to think about it. You caught me completely off guard. I want to give you a good one. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, you'll have to text me and I'll, I'll put it in. in I, production. I really am because now I'm going to be like, oh, man, I should have said. <laughs> well, let me let me ask this one. This one should be pretty easy. What's your favorite song? By which artist, though? Oh dear! You know what? <laughs> I can't, I can't even artist. Well, since we were talking about her, Alanis Morissette. Ah, nice. Okay, my favorite song of hers would have to be. I've had, like a lot of people uninvited from the City of Angels soundtrack. Um, I think because of its Indian music influence, it was after her. Jagged Little Pill album, and she mentions Tori. I think it was Tori Amos. Um, and just the way she starts off the song about, like, you know, you're not invited, you know, what are you doing here? It's just, I don't know, that's one of my favorite Alana's songs. Yeah, that's one of, one of mine as well. Um, my new favorite is That I Would Be Good, though. That's, that's the one that, that resonated with me. Yeah, that one's, that one's really good. Andre, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast and for the work you're doing in our community around creating a government that works for everyone, which is really the goal. So, so grateful for your compassion and uh, everything that you just contribute. With that, I want to thank you as well for tuning in to this episode. Uh, stay tuned. We've got some amazing things coming your way. And as I always remind you, you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. What you do matters. So live compassionately.